We continue in our series through the book of 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to turn with me in your Old Testament to the book of 2 Samuel. If you're not sure where to find that, feel free to look up in the front and get a page number or do a search on your electronic device. Find the book of 2 Samuel, and we will be in chapter 14 today. We'll look at the chapter in its entirety, and we're actually going to be looking at what we're calling ungrace. Now, that term ungrace is not original with me. In fact, Philip Yancey coined the term years ago when he wrote the book, What's So Amazing?, about grace. And I just want to read a couple of excerpts from Yancey's book as he talks about ungrace. Ungrace plays the background static of life for families, nations, and institutions. It is sadly our natural human State. He goes on and says, Ungrace causes cracks to fissure open between mother and daughter, father and son, brother and sister, between scientists and prisoners and tribes and races. Left alone, cracks widen. And for the resulting chasms of ungrace, there is only one remedy. The frail rope bridge of forgiveness. He goes on to say that forgiveness is not, or excuse me, forgiveness is an unnatural act. And right at the beginning of that chapter, Yancey quotes George Herbert in writing this. He who cannot forgive another breaks the bridge over which he must pass himself. Great quote. He who cannot forgive another breaks the bridge over which he must pass himself. Ungrace. And that's what we're going to see this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 14. If you remember with me back over our brief study through the book thus far, we saw in chapters 1 through 9 that David, our, one of our central figures in the book, demonstrated dependence on the Lord. And as he depended on the Lord, God blessed him greatly. But as we came, came to chapters 10 through 12, David grew self-dependent and stopped being God-dependent. And as soon as he started depending on self and not God, he began a downward spiral into sin, so much so that he committed adultery with another man's wife. In chapter 12, we saw that at least nine months passed in this state of misery, knowing that he was not right with the Lord. And finally, he confessed his sin. He said the same thing about it that God says about it. 
And we noted that God is always there to forgive us the guilt of our sin. If we come to Him and confess it, say the same thing about it that He says about it, He always will forgive the guilt of our sin. But, as we're going to see now, in the second half of the book, there are always consequences to sin. One of the consequences we saw just in the last chapter, in chapter 13, is that David imprinted his sons. His sons started following the same example that David had set for them. Just as David saw a woman that was not his and he took her, so also we saw in chapter 13 that David has a son named Amnon. And Amnon saw his half-sister and wanted her and took her. That sister, Tamar, has a full brother named Absalom. And we also saw in chapter 13 that Absalom was imprinted by his dad. His solution to fix the problem was murder. And so he arranged, premeditated the murder of his half-brother, Amnon. So that when we came to the end of chapter 13, we found Absalom has fled Jerusalem... He is living with his maternal grandfather. And he's away for three years. And at the end of chapter 13, we saw that David is just deeply hurting for the loss not only of his son Amnon, but for the loss of his living son Absalom. And yet, he's doing nothing about it. Which brings us this morning to chapter 14. I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. You can follow along in your copy of the scripture. Now Joab the son of Zariah perceived that the king's heart was inclined toward Absalom. So Joab sent to Tekoa and brought a wise woman from there and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments now and do not anoint yourself with oil, but be like a woman who's been mourning for the dead many days. Then go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. The king said to her, What's your trouble? She answered, Truly I am a widow, for my husband is dead, your maidservant and two sons, but the two of them, excuse me, your maidservant had two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field, and there was no one to separate them, so one struck the other and killed him. Now behold, the whole family has risen against your maidservant. And they say, hand over the one who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed, and destroy the heir also. 
Thus they will extinguish my coal which is left, so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, Oh, my lord, the king, the iniquity on me and my father's house, but the king and his throne are guiltless. So the king said, Whoever speaks to you, bring him to me, and he will not touch you any more. Then he said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, so that the avenger of blood will not continue to destroy, otherwise they will destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your sons shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please, let your maidservant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. The woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring back his banished one. For we will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Now, the reason I have come to speak this word to my Lord, the King, is that the people have made me afraid. So your maidservant said, let me now speak to the King. Perhaps the King will perform the request of his maidservant. For the King will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance of God. Then your maidservant said, please let the word of my Lord, the King, be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my Lord, the King, to discern good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered, said to the woman, please do not hide anything from me about what I am about to ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king please speak. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman replied, as your soul lives, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. Indeed, it was your servant Joab who commanded me. And it was he who put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant in order to change the appearance of things. Your servant Joab has done this thing. But my lord's wise, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all that is in the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I will surely do this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. Then Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, O my lord the king, and that the king has performed the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Gesher, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king said, Let him turn to his house, his own house, and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. Now in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. When he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. 
To Absalom there was born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem, and he did not see the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. So he sent again a second time, but he would not come. Therefore he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine. He has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose, came to Absalom at his house, and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent for you, saying, Come here, that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. If there's iniquity in me, let him put me to death. So when Joab came to the king and told him, he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Three years, Absalom is separated from his dad. Three years banished. Three years at his grandpa's house with no correspondence at all. And yet, David was hurting. But he wouldn't do anything about it. Instead of reaching out to his son in grace, he demonstrated ungrace. And one of the things that we're going to see today and also next week in chapter 15 is in the absence of grace, bitterness and payback abound. In the absence of grace, bitterness and payback abound. Right behind our house, we have a pond that we share with 10 other na- with 10 total neighbors, nine other neighbors. It's not much of a pond. I, uh, it almost has a, uh, a kind of a aura about it that it may have even been a buffalo wallow at one time. It has been there forever and ever. It's just a, a slough hole, really. It's not deep enough to sustain a healthy fish population, so all of us neighbors have to have aerators run in it. And we've dug a couple of eight-foot holes. We try to maintain a fish population, and, and normally we can. Two years ago, right before freeze-up, someone pulled out one of the aerators out of the pond without anyone else knowing, and then it froze up. And two years ago, we had a terribly cold winter. And we had, in the spring, the results of one of our aerators missing. Terrible fish kill. We had dead fish everywhere. It's one of the few times I'm thankful for buzzards. Came in and cleaned up the mess. Well... We had been working on getting that pond stocked, and we had some nice fish in that pond, and 
And after the huge kill, all of the neighbors were just kind of lackadaisical. No one really was taking any action about putting new fish in the pond. I think everybody's, ah, let's just leave it sit for a while. There's a problem. In the absence of the good fish, things just don't stay neutral. Guess what invaded? Bullheads. Oh, bullheads. We have got so many bullheads. You can look out there and just see the water rippling with bullheads and they keep it all mucky because they're always getting in the bottom and making a mess of things. My neighbor boys were out fishing for bullheads and I had a whole five-gallon bucket of them and then I overheard their mother saying, now you put them back. It was hard for me not to want to go over and disagree with mom, but I wanted to say, take that five-gallon bucket and go throw it in the ditch. We don't want those bullheads. You see, in the absence of the desirable, the undesirable backfilled immediately. And one of the things we're going to see this morning is in the absence of grace, the undesirable backfills immediately. Bitterness. Payback. And we're going to see that lived out before us on the pages of Second Samuel. In the absence of grace, bitterness and payback are soon to follow. Well, as we come to chapter 14, we see Joab, actually David's nephew, the commander of his armies, having a keen insight into his uncle's heart. He knows that David is hurting. In fact, if you look here, it says in chapter 14, verse 1, the king's heart literally was to Absalom, was toward Absalom. It means that, that David's heart was, was just going out to his banished son. So Joab devises a plan. It's a plan so similar to what we saw in chapter 12 with Nathan the prophet. Joab is going to recruit a woman to come and fabricate a story. And then get David's verdict about the fabricated story and then will turn the tables and basically once again to David say, You are the man. In the process, the woman who is recruited is going to remind David about God. We're going to see that that she is going to share with David that, that God makes it possible for guilty people to be reconciled to himself. Therefore, He needs to make it possible for guilty people to be reconciled to himself. He needs to extend grace. Why? Because God extends grace. So we see Joab 
recruiting a woman from Tekoa in verse 2. That would be uh, a village or a town about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. For no other reason, it would reduce the chances of David recognizing the woman. It also tells us here that she's wise. That Hebrew word carries the idea of clever. She's experienced. She's intelligent. She actually has the capabilities of convincing David that the account that she's going to relay to him is true. Notice at the end of verse 3, it says, So Joab put the words in her mouth. So he says to this woman from Tekoa, This is the story that I want you to share. Now, it's by no accident that the story that the woman is instructed to share is highly similar to Genesis chapter 4, the account of Cain and Abel. And Bible teachers feel there's a good chance here that this story was chosen so that David would connect back with the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. And yet, instead of God carrying out what later is legislated in the Old Testament law that Cain must die because he took the law life of his brother, God is gracious to him. Maybe David, when he hears this story with his understanding of the Scripture, will make a connection that God was gracious. He needs to be gracious too. So we find the woman of Tekoa going to David. Why has David let this situation just hang out there? Three years! Not sending for his son, not going to try to meet his son. The text doesn't tell us. But many believe that it could be that David is hesitant to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem because he is familiar with the Old Testament law. He knows Exodus chapter 21 verse 12 states that if murder is committed by premeditation, the murderer must die. And David does not know how to get out of this fix because the murderer is his own son. So Joab puts a story in the mouth of an actress. A story where God was gracious in a similar circumstance. She comes and requests a hearing from the king. And in verses 5 through 7, she relays the story of two sons. They get in a fight. No one's there to break it up. And one son kills the other one. And now the family is following Old Testament law and wants to take the life of the other son. If you look down at verse 11, it states, Let the king remember the Lord your God so that the avenger of blood will not continue to destroy, otherwise they will destroy my son. So what's happening here in this 
fabricated story is that one brother kills the other, and now the family members are calling for the offending brother, the murderer, to die. The woman pleads with the king and says, if that happens, they will extinguish my coal which is left. Now she's not talking about her Weber grill. She isn't saying, hey, if they kill my son, my grill is going to go out. She's using a word picture. She's saying, in my fire, there's only one burning ember, my son. And if they extinguish him, we're done. There's no name carrying on from my husband. There's no no one to pass the inheritance down to. I'm in deep trouble. Please, king, help me. And David issues a verdict. He extends grace. In verse 11, at the end of the verse, it says, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. It's the same verdict that God issued for Cain, even though Cain had murdered his brother Abel. Then the woman turns the tables. And she says to the king, hey, may I have permission to continue to speak? David says, yes, proceed. And then she says to him in verse 12, excuse me, verse 13, basically this, it's you. Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? not bringing your son, who's the heir to the throne, back to Jerusalem. For in speaking this word, the king is as one who's guilty. You are guilty, king. You are guilty of ungrace. You've not brought back this banished one. And then we come to verse 14. It's actually the center of this account. It's a word about who God is. And this woman of Tekoa tells the king, reminds the king to look at God. So she says to him, it's true, we're, we, every one of us are going to die. There is a result of sin. Everyone dies. But... God does not take away life. And by that, I think what she's saying is God does not delight in disciplining people. Rather, He plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from Him. She says, think about God. Everyone is guilty before God, but God doesn't delight in being separated from his people who he has created. God is all about restitution, or excuse me, resolution. God is all about reconciliation. God is all about figuring out a way to bring people back to himself. We as Christians know that ultimately... The best picture of this is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Think about the fact that, for example, in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, God saw our plight. And in the first part of Romans chapter 3, it talks about we're all, we all have no hope. Not one of us even is seeking after God. We are all destined for God's wrath. But God's a God of reconciliation. He's a God of grace. As the woman puts it here in verse 14, he, he plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. So what God did is sent the second person of the Trinity, his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who he describes here in verse 25 of Romans 3, the Apostle Paul says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. It's a big word, but it means that God satisfied the righteous anger of himself by sending his one and only son to take all the penalty for sin, your sin and my sin, David's sin, upon himself. Through his blood, he died for us. And that through faith... That payment for sin is credited to our life. It goes on to say, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's always been about reconciliation about bringing people who are guilty back to himself. And that's what the woman is saying here. She says, think about God. The character of God. Well, David looks to the woman and says to her, "Uh, there's more to the picture here than what I'm seeing. I want you to speak truth to me. Did my nephew put you up to this? Down in verse 19, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And she says, yes, it is. Yes, he is. You see, the woman's message is basically this. God reconciles people to himself. And as recipients of that reconciliation, God's people need to exercise that same reconciliation. David, you've experienced reconciliation. You've experienced forgiveness of the Lord. How can you not reach out and reconcile with your son? And she challenges him by encouraging him to look at God. My wife has a niece who is she's she loves Jesus she's a wonderful young woman and her husband they are the closest things to hippies that I've ever met they just kind of go as the wind carries them they decided after they got married that they wanted to figure out where a neat place to live in the United States would be so they chose 12 areas of the country and decided to live in each area for one month and they actually were looking for a VW a little van to drive around, but they couldn't find one. I don't know if they're going to paint it or what. 
So they got about seven months into it and thought, oh man, we're really tired of living out of a suitcase. So they ended up going back to where they went to college in Sioux Falls. And of all the places they went, they're in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And they just kind of don't worry about stuff. He has like three different jobs just to kind of keep some money coming in. And and one of his jobs is he's doing some finish work, like some carpentry work. And I noticed on Facebook this week that he had a project. He was working on a historic home, and he was trying to replace some of the trim, the external trim around the windows, but it was very intricate trim. You just couldn't go down to Menards and buy something like that. So what he was doing was reproducing that historic trim. And he had pictures on Facebook where he had a piece of the rotten trim and he was matching it with the what he was making. And then the final product was there. He had the old and the new, the old and the new. That's what the woman of Tekoa was doing. She was saying to David, do you want to know what this is supposed to look like? Look at the original. Do you know how you want to, how you should be acting right now? Look at God. He's the original. Look at the pattern that he has set for us. The pattern of reaching out in grace. Well, what we see in chapter 14 verses 21 through 33 and the rest of chapter 15 is in the absence of grace, bitterness and payback result As we look in chapter 21, or chapter 14, verses 21 through 23, David says, fine, you're right. Let's bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. But, I'm not gonna let him see me. We again don't know why. Maybe some believe that David thought, well, others will think I'm being light on sin if I just bring him back and restore a relationship with him. Some believe that he was following the uh, p- the uh, picture of Genesis 4.16 where God was gracious to Cain and didn't kill him, but banished him from his presence. But for whatever reason, David won't restore his relationship with his son. What results in the absence of grace? Frustration. The text goes on to tell us that that Absalom requests a hearing with Joab to go before the king to plead his case and Joab won't come. In fact, for two years, he asked Joab to come. And verse 29 says, he even asked the second time, he won't come. So Joab, he says, I'm not going to go. Absalom is getting more and more frustrated. So he tells his servants, go burn Joab's field. It's about ready for harvest. That'll get his attention. And it did. Sure enough, here comes Joab to Absalom's house. What are you doing? I was just ready to harvest my barley and you guys burned it. What's going on? And Absalom basically says, you've been ignoring me. Why did my father bring me back here? I would have been better off at grandpa's house. 
In fact, I can't go on this way. Go to the king and tell him, if he wants to take my life, take my life. But I cannot live in this banished state. And when the chapter comes to an end, with Joab going to the king, the king calling for Absalom, and forgiveness and and reconciliation take place. But it's too little, too late. I went to college with a girl that wanted to get married. She came to her parents and asked for their blessing on the marriage, and they said, no, we do not believe that this is the man for you. She went ahead and married him anyway. And so now, instead of him being a boyfriend of whom they did not approve, and then being a fiancé of whom they did not approve, now it's a son-in-law of whom they don't approve. And their reaction to the situation was to cut off all communication with their daughter and their son-in-law. It would have nothing to do with them. In the absence of grace, bitterness abounds. And that reaction on the part of the parents caused a chasm that I don't know if it's even healed today. You see, ungrace in relationships leads to bitterness. Our chapter here today encourages us, go look at the original. Look at the heart of God. God is all about bringing restoration of relationship. doesn't mean we overlook sin. It doesn't mean that we don't practice church discipline according to uh, Scripture, but it means that our heart is always about bringing resolution, restitution, reconciliation of relationship. If you're here this morning and you don't know if you're in right relationship with God or not, I would encourage you not to leave today without talking with one of our elders who will be back in the prayer room that can share with you about how you can know for sure that you can be in right relationship with God. Or maybe you're here and you're hurting and and you just want to pray with someone. Please, after the service, go back and uh, spend some time in the prayer room. I'm going to close this in prayer and then we're going to have a closing song and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you that you are a God of reconciliation, that you saw the plight of men, that we could not fix our own state, and you sent your one and only Son who took our penalty upon himself so that we could be in right relationship with you through faith. Help us in response to your grace to be a church of grace, to be men and women of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.